You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my charming colleagues, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey, how's it going? And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Y'all doing good? We're doing great. What, what have you guys been up to this weekend? Uh, all the things. We have had a very medical weekend. My daughter broke her arm. My uh, one of our family friends' boyfriends has was working on a car, and the the fender won, and so he got a big old gash in his arm. So Ouch. he doesn't have insurance. So we sewed him up at our kitchen table after. <laughs> and so we we have had a very medical weekend this weekend, and I would just assume not do that. Like I know that we do medicine for a living. None of this stuff bothers me. Everybody is fine, but I would just assume not. Like I know I. Would was on call, but I was not on call for any of this. I was on call to make babies. I was on call to do an Easter egg hunt. I was on a, like I was on a call to do all of those things, not to fix bones and big gashes. Wow, my puppy's getting fixed this weekend or on Monday. So, what kind of puppy do you have? She's a Cavachon. So she's half Cavalier King Charles Spaniel and half Bichon Frise. Oh, wow. Have you fully consented her that this means that she won't be able to have babies in the future without IVF? And does she really know, like, has she waited the six months since signing the forms to know that this is really <laughs> or six weeks or whatever the old Medicare yeah, rules are? Yeah, this is one of those times that she really doesn't get a voice in it. And technically, <laughs> even with I, well, she would have to use somebody, she'd have to have donor doggy eggs <laughs> because they take out their ovaries as well as their uterus and fallopian tube. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so she's going to have hot flashes and everything. Doggy hot flashes? <laughs> oh, never thought about that before. I never thought about that either. Like when we got, we got a rescue pup and this is, I mean, she's now, we've had her for 10 years now, but when I give her belly rubs, I can still see the line of blue stitches underneath. When I was in college, I had a rescue pup and she lived with us for almost 18 years. So she was with us for a really long time and she got fixed before we officially took ownership of her. They did her surgery and all that stuff. And I guess they use like some sort of like metal or non-dissolvable suture because you could always feel underneath her little scar. You could always feel like her fascial incision. They probably are moving around so much. They want something that's permanent because they could rip it open pretty easily in that first month or two. Apparently they can do it laparoscopically now. I don't think our vet's doing it laparoscopically. I imagine they're going to do a little little incision, but yeah, apparently they can do laparoscopy now. So spay and neuter is female versus male. Is that the deal? Is that spay is female, neuter is male. Why do you suppose they call it different things? As my husband says, let's web search this. <laughs> let's Google it. Yeah, because we don't object to Dr. Google ever. No. <laughs> yeah. 
we don't want anybody to Google us, but hey, if we want to Google what the vet's doing, it's okay, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Let's see. Oh, so according to animalleaguewellness.org, the difference between spay and neuter comes down to gender of the animal, which we, we just discussed. Okay, yeah. Both terms refer to the surgical sterilization of an animal, but sometimes neuter is used for both genders. Oh, okay. Hmm. So our vet friends out there are going, okay, they're idiots. They don't know this stuff, but. What I Googled was, do dogs have hot flashes? And, and so <laughs> this one popped up with, do dogs have menopause symptoms, which is of course what hot flashes are. And it says there's no menopause in dogs. So older female dogs continue to have heat cycles, but they just become further and further apart, which I think is really an advantage to being a dog that no one has discussed. That's interesting, huh? So they could have puppies like their whole life then? That's what that means? Well, no, it's just they get further and further apart and they decrease, but they don't have the symptoms associated with the lack of estrogen that human women have that send off the hot flashes, the mood swings and all of those things. Because their ovaries are only like kind of active during when they're like in heat, when they're ovulating and the rest of the time they're like on Lupron. Essentially. But I mean, I'm saying if they ovulate every few months, they could still have puppies all along, right? Well, they could, but it's said that the those heat cycles get further and further and further and further apart. So eventually it just stops. And so there's no opportunity for them to have a heat cycle than to have puppies as they get older. Uh, okay. All right. So now that we've answered the animal questions, <laughs> what are the human questions that we have? We really didn't answer the animal questions. We were just asking the animal questions. Fortunately, we know more about humans than we do animals. At least I think we do, right? <laughs> Most days of the week, at least. <laughs> All right. So we are doing a question episode. So here is our first question. What is the healthy number of follicles before retrieval? And what would be the ideal length of the follicles? I mean, size matters. Um, <laughs> it does. It really does. It does. So Carrie, I, I think you should answer the size matters question because <laughs> your clinic has actually, y'all y'all talked about this at ASRM at our national meeting just a month ago. We did. And it was uh, very well received. So the research that we did, and to give you guys a little bit of background. So historically, when fresh cycles were what everybody did, because the freezing technology really was kind of crappy, the teaching used to be when you got three follicles that hit 18 millimeters, you trigger, and then you go and you retrieve your eggs. Well, we have realized now that frozen embryo transfers have gotten much, much better that it's less the, the size of the follicles, like those three, there's nothing magical that happens at three follicles hitting 18 millimeters. Part of the reason we found that that was optimal when you're doing a fresh transfer is because your hormones start to go a little bit more haywire as the follicles get bigger than that. And so it impacts the uterus. And it makes the uterus less receptive. And so that's why we triggered at those three follicles being 18 millimeters. So what our clinic did, because we're research nerds and embrace that fully, is that we took measurements because um, we do freeze all cycles. So we took measurements of people going through retrieval and said, okay, if the egg comes from size X follicle, what's the likelihood that it's going to make a good blastocyst? And it's a really time-intensive laborious study. It's part of the reason why it hasn't been done before is because it is painful for everyone to do. And I mean, painful in the <laughs> psychologically, it just takes longer. Like you have to know where every egg that comes out, you have to identify it and put it in a separate place. So you know exactly which follicle came from. Yes. So I'm going to interrupt just real quick. So when most of us do egg retrievals, we don't 
measure the follicle at time of egg retrieval and then retrieve the egg. Whereas at Carrie's clinic, they do this because they're doing these studies. So that mm-hmm. it makes a difference. You, you can't just ask your, your own doctor this because most people aren't doing what her clinic's doing. And Carrie's measuring the follicle, which is the fluid filled sac around the egg. We can't actually see the egg because it's microscopic. So what Carrie's really talking about is the size of that fluid filled sac that's important. Exactly. So for the time that we did the study, and, and we don't do it all the time either, because like I said, it's, it is very laborious to do this. So when we were doing the study, we had an ultrasonographer in there. And so she would measure the size of the follicle. Then we would go in, we would drain that fluid, take the egg out, and we would track it and we would see how it did. And so we would lump together all of the eggs that were 18 to 20 millimeters, 20 to 22, 22 to 24, and so on. And we had them broken up into a zillion different groups, which let me tell you how much our embryologists really loved doing that. (laughs) All for science. All for science. But what we found is that there's really not a size of follicle that is too big because traditionally people would say, oh, you're getting in the twenties. You're going to have post-mature follicles are not going to be as good. Well, that doesn't really exist anymore because when we tracked them out, we found that you can have follicles that are 25, 26, 27 millimeters, and they do just fine. The embryos that they make are beautiful. Now, the the sweet spot is usually, I would say about 20 and higher. And there are some differences that we're trying to tease out between do you have genetic testing or do you not? And so what we are finding is that the embryos that originate from these follicles, if you get a good embryo, it doesn't seem to matter whether it is from a really small follicle or a really large follicle. A good embryo is a good embryo, but you are more likely to get those good embryos from those bigger follicles. And so that's part of what we spent many, 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 many man hours looking at. So Carrie, I have a question then. So some of our listeners may be thinking, well, why in the world would my doctor trigger me when I had a bunch that are like 13 or 14? Why wouldn't they just keep pushing and letting them all keep growing and growing and growing? Well, what's the problem with that? So when you go too far. I mean, you're trying to hit a sweet spot here. Like you don't want somebody who's going to be in a retrieval for a month. That is prohibitively expensive. It's mentally expensive. You don't want to keep going forever and ever. And so you're going to keep recruiting additional cohorts as they go through. And you want to make sure that you don't lose those eggs to ovulation. Like there probably is a point where if you go out to 20 days, you're not going to get as good, but it all depends on the growth of the eggs. And I would say the medicines that we give to our patients to prevent ovulation. So things like Cetratide, Ganarelix, Lupron, those types of things. There's only so much that those medicines can do. Right. Yeah. We can only prevent you from ovulating so long. It's going to happen. And I would say losing a bunch of eggs to an ovulation that occurred through the meds that we're giving to prevent ovulation is pretty infrequent, but, but it happens. I mean, it, it happens to every doc in every clinic more than once a year, like, and, and there are certain patients where we see it happening more often. Typically, I think older patients are more likely to, to break through. My 40 pluses. Yeah. Yeah. Or decreased ovarian reserve or high LH levels. Yeah. Those ovaries are less, less unreliable. They don't do quite what we think they're supposed to do a lot of times. So back to the question about healthy number of follicles before retrieval, I think that's a very personal question. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that you know, the more eggs we get, the happier we are. However, not all of us are blessed, and I'm amongst the diminished ovarian reserve people, not all of us are blessed to be able to have a cohort where we're going to get, you know, 15, 20 
30 eggs that, that that just isn't necessarily in our cards and and I think it is more important instead of being like oh no my ovaries aren't going to produce you know that number is doing what we can to produce the best quality eggs and thus embryos to get you to where you need to be and so size does matter but we need a good egg so don't be too focused on that and I would agree that quality definitely trumps quantity. But I think in our clinic, we sort of feel like, you know, if we can get 15 or so eggs, that's kind of the sweet spot, maybe up to 20. But I find that when we do have some patients that get 40 or 50 eggs, a lot of times those eggs don't do so great. It's like your body can only make a certain number that are really good. And I think a lot of times those patients sometimes will see poor fertilization, poor development, because just the eggs are just not that good for some reason. And I'd like to say, you know, when you say you'd like to have 15 or 20 eggs, when you're saying that, that's because you have a higher likelihood of getting multiple potentially chromosomally normal embryos, not necessarily, oh, I need to have 15 to 20 eggs to get one baby. You have to understand we're all perfectionists. We're (laughs) OCD, I's dotted, T's crossed. That's how we help you get to that baby point. And we take all of these inputs from all these different directions. And it's like, what can we do to make sure we get that baby? So we like to have a little, you know, wiggle room if possible. But when I do egg retrievals at the point that I get seven eggs, I'm like, I can get a baby out of that. You know, I can get babies out of fewer eggs and, you know, vice versa. But like at that point, that's the point where like I start talking and like relaxing. Yeah, <laughs> because me I'm, too. I'm so like, I, you know, that's what exactly. That's when I start breathing. So I hope we're able to answer that question. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So our next question. Hi, I am 33, have a 17 month old. And while trying for number two, found out that I have DOR or diminished ovarian reserve. AMH is 0.6. Antral follicle count is five to six. I understand that means that I have a low quantity of eggs, but could you explain why that could lead to fertility trouble? I might not have a huge supply of eggs if I am still ovulating one egg each month. Why does it matter? P.S. I have moved forward with IVF and I'm stemming for my first retrieval now with six follicles growing, but have always wondered this. Thanks for the podcast. It has been very helpful as I've been gearing up for IVF. Well, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So... Um, I'm so glad it's helpful. That always makes me feel so good to hear that we are helping people. Um, that warms the cockles of my heart. So this is when I, when someone asks this question, I think of grocery store apples. What I mean by that is if you go to the grocery store at 10 AM on a Saturday morning and you go to get your apples, you're going to see a beautiful, gorgeous, big pyramid display of bright, shiny, beautiful apples. And it doesn't matter which ones you grab. There's going to be a couple bad ones in there, but the majority of whatever you're going to grab and put in your bag are going to be gorgeous and beautiful and delicious. When you go to that same grocery store at 11 p.m. on a Sunday night, because it's taking you that long to get there, and you go to that same apple display you're down to the single layer of apples. They have not restocked yet. The truck doesn't come till tomorrow morning. And so there are still some good apples in there, but you are far more likely to encounter the bruised, the worm-filled, 
the I've been dropped by the child who is using them as batting practice in the middle of the produce section, those types of apples. And so it doesn't mean you're not going to get a good one. You just don't have as many to choose from because the restocking just hasn't happened. And so it's the same kind of thing. So it means that you're over the course of time, your eggs have become atretic, meaning they have died off, which is normal. That's what eggs do. Some people, they happen a little bit younger than others. And you just, you have fewer to choose from. And so it doesn't mean you can't get a baby. It's just, we have less to work from. And we know that any bag of apples we are going to grab, like if you get those prepackaged bags, there's always going to be one or two bad ones in there. It's just, you're more likely to find some more bum apples in there. And so it's going to take some more work to get to the good ones. Well, and that, and I would agree with everything you said. And I love that visual, Carrie. I can just see that stack of apples as you're describing. That is such a great visual. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> My mentor, when I was in residency, who was one of the people who inspired me to go into this, his analogy was tomatoes, but it was exactly as you described. It was warmed oh, my heart. Absolutely. Tomatoes are actually probably better than apples. They're a little bit more delicate and eggs are a little bit more delicate. The one thing I would say about our listener's age, she's 33. You know, I think when we first started checking AMH as a routine, probably 10 years ago, I think a lot of us thought, oh my gosh, if the AMH is low in a 33-year-old, I mean, early on, I think we were saying, well, you know, it's like you're acting like a 40-year-old. And But we've, we know now that genetically, the eggs that you make at 33, even though you may not have as many as the average 33-year-old, are still genetically a 33-year-old egg. You know, about half of them are genetically normal, half of them are not. And so, you know, I certainly learned going forward that it doesn't necessarily mean you can't get pregnant. And I've certainly had women in your age range with low AMHs that just get pregnant with oral medicine or with injectables. But just you worry a little bit more that if the egg count's low, that it's just going to be harder for you to get pregnant. And that, you know, maybe when you get to be 38 or 39 or 40, maybe it's going to be a lot harder for you to get pregnant than somebody that's, you know, your same age that has a good egg count. But bottom line is the point I was trying to make is age is protective and it's helpful. And the fact that you're 33, it's not good that you have a low AMH, but of all the people that have low AMHs, women in their early 30s are going to do much better than women in their mid to late 30s. All right. This one's a little bit lengthy. Hello. I am currently 36, almost 37. And my husband is almost 36. We have one son that is almost three. We conceived our son with no issues in our second month of trying. Now we've been trying for our second child for eight cycles and had one chemical pregnancy. She did stop breastfeeding uh, right around the same time as the chemical pregnancy. However, due to age and their impatience, and they consulted an REI after six months of trying, and he ordered all the initial workup for both her and her husband and found nothing to be in this. My OB-GYN is telling me to just be patient as we've already been successful with one child and that she's, quote, not infertile. Also, because she was trying while also breastfeeding and that she needed to give her body time to readjust. However, consulting with the REI, he basically said her chances of conceiving naturally are greatly diminished because of her age and that a woman her age will only produce about two healthy eggs a year. And then everything else has to go right in order for conception to actually take place. So he has recommended IUI with Clomid. The question is, is for a couple like themselves who has one child and there is nothing diagnostically wrong except being older, should they be proactive and start their journey with the REI immediately or do you think we should give it some more time and be patient? I'm hoping it'll happen naturally again, but every month that goes by where it doesn't, I grow more impatient and sad. We really love your advice. So our listener does realize that we're REIs, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're probably going to take the side of the REI because I think all of us would agree that there's no time like the present. And so 
you know, it certainly it's nice to be just patient in some situations, but you know, you want to have another child and, you know, I get it. You want to have them closer together. And, you know, typically if you've tried for six months after the age of 35, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine says it's reasonable to seek out help from a fertility doctor. And so, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to speed things up a little bit. You know, I do agree with your OBGYN. You're probably relatively fertile. It's just age makes a difference for everybody. But I think there's nothing wrong with doing Clomid and IUI. It's not overly expensive and it's not overly involved. And if you came to see me, that's probably what I would recommend. What are your thoughts, Carrie? Seeing and agree with above. Like I, I would sign on to all of that. Like I think all of us tend more towards intervening early rather than later. If they want more than one kid, in addition to the child that they already have, I would definitely be more aggressive. I don't tend to be terribly patient either in this situation. It's been more than six months. Let's do it. <laughs> Patience is not one of my attributes, I don't think. No. no. <laughs> and we've mentioned this in um, some episodes before that realize that our diagnostic testing is limited. And so just because all the tests we did, so making sure his sperm looks and is moving okay, and that your eggs technically look normal as far as we can tell and your tubes look like they're open and healthy appearing, that doesn't mean that there's not something wrong. We know that statistically you should be pregnant by now. And that first six months of trying is your greatest chances. Your second six months, it drops. And then by the time you get to a year, you're looking at about a one to 2% chance of it happening on your own without help. And so just because there's not something that we can pinpoint as being wrong, we know just the fact that you're sitting here talking to us that something isn't going the way that it should be. So that's another reason why we probably err more on the side of being proactive than not being proactive. Time for one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Oh my. Um, <laughs> you'll oh know my. why I said, oh my. Um, it's a really long one, I'm guessing. No, it's not really long, but you'll understand why I said, oh my. Hi, thank you so much for the amazing podcast. I have enjoyed listening to it and have gained so much knowledge as my husband and I have walked through our IVF journey. Question, during my egg retrieval, they were able to retrieve 72 eggs. Does this mean I will likely go to menopause early? I am 32 now and we have all the embryos we will ever need. 26 blastocysts that are now frozen. Gosh. Whew. But mostly just curious how that will affect my future. Thank you so much. Do you understand why I said, oh my? Yes. Yes. There's the oh my. So no, you're not going to go through menopause earlier. And the reason for that is because when we are giving medications for STEM in order to help these eggs to grow, we can only work on what is there. You cannot work on what is not there because if we could get 72 eggs on absolutely everybody, believe me, we would try because uh, those kind of numbers are the things that dreams are made of because it means that you know that you're going to get the family you want ultimately, um, or at least you have a very high likelihood of it. And so those eggs were going to be recruited and were going to either ovulate or die that month anyway, whether you went through a stem cycle or not. The difference with the stem cycle means that those meds are going to support them all to grow up. And so instead of having just one ovulate, you had 72 that ovulated. Those eggs were going to come out and be out of the pool one way or the other. This will not change your age of menopause. The ovary is really good at preserving that. Not to worry. I would like to do a brief interjection for our listeners and 
mention that getting 72 eggs at retrieval is not normal. (laughs) It's not normal. It's not what we expect. So please do not put yourself up to that level, like expecting that level of success, because that's not what we normally get. And quite honestly, most people who are going to get that many eggs are at a significant risk of getting really sick from ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. And so when we're thinking of, you know, you trying to get pregnant, realize that number one, safety is always our number one priority. So I can say I personally never have an egg retrieval with 72 eggs. And quite honestly, I I hope I never do. It's one of those things we deal with if we need to, but that's a really high number. I've actually gotten more than 72 before. Yeah, we've gotten some in the 70s, but generally speaking, and I was kind of trying to figure it out. I mean, her embryos actually did really well to get 26 blastocysts. Most people that I've done egg retrievals on that have a lot of eggs in that range, they don't do so well. The embryos definitely don't develop and divide the way hers did. So good news is she'll never have to go through an egg retrieval again, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes. And no early menopause. And no early menopause. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on our Ask the Docs segment, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you want to hear and what you're thinking about, and we'll go from there. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.